question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello again. I hope you had a nice week. Um, I'm going to sort of repeat a bit of what I said last week by way of setting the uh, format, the the framework uh, for why the church evolved the way it did. The Emperor Trajan, who reigned from 98 to 117 A.D., Um, Some of his correspondence with provincial uh, officials has survived, and we get a picture of what the situation was uh, for Christians in the provinces. Trajan had forbidden secret meetings of unapproved societies due to a threatened invasion from Parthia in the east. He feared they might become cells of political disruption, fifth columnists as it were. The experience uh, of one particular uh, official, Plinius Younger, um, he wrote to Trajan asking for information how to punish Christians. <clears throat> First, he gives the procedure as had been, he had been following himself, asking an accused if he were a Christian three times, with the threat of punishment each time. If he persisted in saying yes, he would execute them. If someone denied it, he demanded that they invoke the state gods and worship the emperor's statue with incense and wine and then curse Christ. <clears throat> Some had said they were in the past, but no longer. They claimed that even when they were Christians, they did nothing more than meet together, sing hymns to Christ as to a god, bind themselves by an oath not to commit theft or robbery or adultery, not to break their word, and not to refuse to pay a debt. Beyond that, they had simply participated in eating a harmless meal of harmless food. Trajan replied that Pliny had taken the right course and that no general rule or fixed form of action should be laid down. Christians were not to be sought out, but if they were accused, they would have to be punished. If anyone denied that he was a Christian and agreed to worship the gods, he was to be pardoned even if he had been under suspicion. No one was to be charged anonymously. And that's something I think we don't appreciate, is the, the influence that uh, the, the Roman system has on our own today. Right there you have the principle that the accused has the right to face his accuser. Now, according to Trajan's decision, it is clear that Christianity was to be regarded as an illegal religion. The name as such was to be punished. To the average Roman, the Christian viewpoint seemed to be, in the words of Trajan, a depraved and extravagant superstition. As a tolerant and enlightened polytheist, 
He could not see how the recognition of the state in any way threatened individual religious loyalty. Even with this clarification, though, no general persecution was envisaged. Under Trajan and his immediate successors, we hear of only individual martyrdoms, not a general action against Christians, per se. Now, success had bred a new problem. The church could no longer avoid taking a stand in relation to the politics and culture of the rest of the world, in particular the Roman world. And it had to define its concepts and organization in response to such challenges. And that is something that we still face today. Um, what do we believe? Why do we believe it? Now, the external threats to Christians, Christianity coincided with internal problems equally serious, if not more so. One of these was the conflict over false teaching, and another was adapting a hitherto freewheeling movement to the pressures of being an institution. These problems loom larger in the later of the New Testament than those with the Jews or with the Roman government. The lines in the church-state conflict were clearly drawn. The death of Christ was not an abstraction for people faced with the possibility of dying on his behalf. Persecution only served to deepen and strengthen the faith. The Christians are more closely in that group and taught them to endure suffering and hardship, a factor in the final victory of the movement. The lines were not so clear in the conflict over false teaching. The church did not enter the post-apostolic age with a well-ordered organization they had a defined doctrinal tradition and a prepared ethical code. All kinds of influences that promised assistance in working out a statement of faith, norms of conduct, and forms of organization were needed. The false teaching problems proved to be a tremendous catalyst here. Now, <clears throat> heresy is not so much wholly false as it is half-truth. It's it takes a partial truth and inflates it, claim of being the whole truth. It is this simplistic grain of truth which makes it appealing to many. The term comes from the Greek meaning a school or party and received the negative connotation of sect quite early. Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge, initially seemed to many a friend in formulating in doc Christian doctrine, but soon was recognized as enemy number one because it had this uh, metaphysical dualism between matter and spirit. And matter was considered evil and spirit was the only thing that was good. And ne no, never the twain should meet. Well, that makes the idea of incarnation very difficult, if not impossible. Gnosticism was more a religious mood than a clearly defined doctrine. It took clearly organized forms under the impact of the Christian movement. This threat to undermine the Christian message necessitated the development of an organized ministry and the notion of apostolic succession. We know what is true and valid and what isn't? How do we know what to include in the canon of scripture and what not? 
How much of this change was due to ongoing time? The first Christians had not reckoned with this possibility. They thought the age would end in their own lifetime. The dominant themes in post-apostolic period are one, unity. Variety and tension had never threatened their unity in Christ so long as the Spirit was at work. But with time, the gift of the Spirit no longer seemed as intense as it used to be. And um, that's why we have Pentecostal churches today who emphasize the Spirit as if it had been neglected. And too many spirits, plural, were claiming to speak in the name of Christ. Unity now had to be defined in terms of its ground, its practical possibilities, and its limits. Secondly was holiness. By calling themselves saints, Christians expressed their conviction that they had been called by God to fulfill his mission in the world. Again with time, sin proved to be a constant reality both within and without the church. It had redefined the meaning of holy and to distinguish between those who were holy and unholy by developing an ethical code. Third, apostolicity was considered important. With the passing of the original apostles, where could the true apostolic tradition be found? The apostles were used as a measure by which um, writings could be decided upon. Uh, because they wanted the authentic uh, teaching of Christ and not something dreamed up later on. Um, with Gnostic teachers claiming to have secret teachings of the apostles, how could they show that this claim was false? Standards had to be developed to distinguish true from false teaching. A regular organized ministry was one way to do this. This problem was a background for the pseudonymous, which is a Greek word meaning written under a false name, writings in the New Testament. These anonymous authors were not trying to deceive or entertain their readers by using the new name and authority of an apostle, but to preserve the true apostolic tradition of confusion. They were convinced that they wrote in the way the apostle himself would have written had he been in their place. But a clearer word on the issues of right teaching and conduct than could be found in existing epistles. Jesus Christ, the church did not encourage such writings, but endorsed them by accepting them into the New Testament canon. Again, uh, I emphasize that that, has, that word canon has one end, not two. It's not talking about a gun. It's talking about a rule of measurement. If it measures up, then it can be included in the New Testament. Um, so, and we're not concerned with actual authorship, but the constancy of the teaching of, of, of writing, that, that of the apostolic tradition. Now, it has become widely regarded by biblical scholars as pseudonymous. Ephesians and three pastoral epistles, first and two Timothy and Titus, 
as probable. The so-called Catholic epistles, James 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. Ephesians seems to have been written for general reading by a number of churches, not a specific church with specific problems like Paul's genuine letters. The conflict with Judaism is now in the past. It's no longer a brain. And use of the phrase holy apostles is almost inconceivable for Paul to use in referring to his own kind. And there are two great themes the unity of things in Christ and church as symbol and agent of that unity. Unity was very important to the early church because uh, it was seen as itself a sign of the power of the Holy Spirit to unify people. And therefore, um, sectarianism was viewed as a scandal. The proof of the Spirit is, does it unify you? Does it bring people together uh, in, in, in the name of Christ? Um, Here the consummation of all things is no longer in the future, in, the, in Ephesians. The cosmic victory has been won. The fullness of time has been reached. And the unity of all things under Christ is a fact. Church is the visible symbol of that unity brought about by Christ. Using the image of head and body, the church is described as the living extension of the cosmic Christ. But difficulties remain. There is the danger of immaturity in the new faith, of deceit and relapse. Against such dangers, the church's apostolicity is, it is founded on the apostles and prophets. And a long concluding section of Ephesians deals with the renewal of ethics and ends with the plea to put on the whole armor of God in the ongoing fight with sin and temptation. Now in the pastoral letters, the fight against false teaching appears to be the only immediate goal. All three of them deal with rules for the churches and their leaders in a dangerous situation. The danger is clearly from within, but not from without the church. Heresy is compared to gangrene. It is a creeping disease and unhealthy matter. Cutting off the sick members is a radical but necessary cure to protect the health of the whole body. In Paul, faith was primarily trust in and commitment to God. Here it is something that can be measured by its conformity to a deposit of correct doctrine. Now, the best way to protect this deposit is through an organized ministry modeled on the image of Paul himself. That ministry is defined by the terms preacher, apostle, and teacher. The ideal minister is also to read, to lead the worship life of the congregation. Among the Catholic epistles, it is the Johannine letters that are preoccupied with false teaching. In the first John, the Antichrist is in the world already, but there are many Antichrists 
people who simply denied Christ, who are the heretics. The dangerous thing about the Antichrist is that he comes disguised, is not easily recognized. One mark of identification is anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Gnostic again. The appeal here, however, is not to the fixed norms of a deposit of faith or to an authoritative ministry, but to the Holy Spirit. This may be insufficient, but it does point to the one thing the church cannot manipulate, the spirit who gives life. Now Jude and Second Peter are generally dated around the mid-2nd century A.D., they saw how dangerously close the church was coming to losing its identity in the battle against heresy. Um, 2 Peter refers to a rather complete New Testament canon and borrows extensively from 19 of Jews, 25 verses appear in one form or another in the second Peter and implies a rather developed stage of conflict with heresy. The focus of the book seems to be Gnosticism. Their approach to dealing with it, they read it, read it is the resigned of apocalypticism. Christians can only pursue faith, pray and wait patiently, knowing that the punishment of the heretics is underway. To those scoffers who doubt the coming judgment, it is not true that the world has remained unchanged since creation. The great flood destroyed the world once. This time it would be by far. However, the exact time cannot be determined since God's chronology is different from ours. And we're going to pause there for a Be back to see you in a few moments. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. 
Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. I'm going to change the subject slightly by discussing worship and ethics as the church. Uh, The church's development cannot be reduced to just defensive reactions. From the beginning, there was the call to a new life in a new community. Paul was convinced that their worship and their ethical conduct was the most important expression in spirit. Since the issues were changing, the need to form a generally accepted ethical code remained a continuing problem as it does even today. Under the influence of Jewish worship, formulated corporate prayer quickly took precedence over spontaneous prayer. Separation of the youth from the fellow took place gradually in different churches during the late first and early second centuries. Um, The term Eucharist comes from a Greek give thanks. And it is a sanctuary looked upon by the church has been as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Starting with the prayer of confession seems to have been common practice from the earliest times. The battle against false teaching and concern for unity provided a catalyst for the church toward a more formal liturgical setting for worship. Perhaps the most solemn way to celebrate Easter victory was the rite of baptism. We know little about the form except that it involved water and a Trinitarian formula, and so it is today. Um, the Catholic Church has recognized baptism so long as it is in the name of the Trinity and water is used. Um, which means that any baptized Christian can baptize. And sometimes in hospitals where you have an a infant, uh, it's obviously not going to live very long. The nurse will baptize them. Um, but commonly it's, it's done by the clergy. But there can be exceptions under extreme situations. Um, baptism was preceded by a period of preparation that involved a fast. Um, hence, we have the 40 days of Lent as a reflection of that. And Easter is still the favorite time for people to be received in the church through baptism and confirmation. Um, but the preparation period in the early church was three years long. Why? Not because it was 
Lock learning. Um, a person had to change their whole way of thinking. It was a, a shift of, of fundamental assumptions. Again, I use the example of the Coliseum in Rome. If you were baptized Christian, you were forbidden to attend the games there or anywhere in the Roman Empire. Any town of any size had the wherewithal, had an arena. Um, because it, uh, its view of human life was that it was cheap, um, short, and, and brutal. And um, from the beginning, the church has objected to that idea simply because of the incarnation. God became one of us, perhaps the most amazing, might one uh, even say alarming, compliments ever paid to the human race. That we are worth redeeming, we're worth salvaging. Um, and therefore, human life is to be taken seriously. Um, in the first Peter, the liturgical frame of baptism is as much present as catechetical instruction. Um, one had to question assumptions that you'd had all your life as a Roman citizen. Um, and that takes time. You don't make these shifts of seeing how things go uh, just intellectually. It's a change of your whole a mood about life. Um, worship and daily life were not separated for this generation of Christians. Indeed, each depends on the other. One Peter is believed to have been written from Rome and is directed to Christians in Asia Minor, specifically to new converts. The word suffering dominates much of 1 Peter. The Christian is advised not to act provocatively, and a blameless conduct is insisted upon so as to keep the issues clear when persecution comes. Um, you shouldn't have done anything other than your faith um, to revoke judgment. Sufferings for the Christian are necessary and test faith like the fire that separates true gold from impurities. Now for Gentiles, the ethical implications of entering the new life were a serious matter. They had to renounce all the ways of their past. The source and substance of this new life is hope and faith, which are synonymous for this author. Christians cannot dodge ethical decisions that will bring them hardships because their actions are not directed towards worldly success, but towards providing their faithfulness, proving their faithfulness to God. Thus, the new life is not to be measured primarily by what the Christian does, but by what he hopes and believes. Christians can no longer be at home with the world's ways. The argument runs as follows. The new life is grounded in faith. That faith inevitably demands holiness. And finally, faith in the new life in it brings 
uh, the foundation of a new community. Social order could be accepted as it was because this would all soon pass away. Yet this did not mean absolute approval. The church's primary obligation is to live in and bear witness to the world according to the will of God. Now, this sometimes meant Christians separating themselves completely from the practices of the world. For example, pagan worship and the loose attitude towards sex. On the other hand, the Christians accommodated themselves, for example, in their relationship to government and to social institutions like slavery. The ethical instruction in 1 Peter reflects the teaching of the early church in these matters. One law that determines the life of the Christian community is the law of love, specifically love of Christ as Lord. This means to love what he has loved, each other. Any words or deeds which harm our brother must be put aside. It is only within the Christian community that the life of love can be nurtured. Now, relating ethics to the world requires two quantities, two qualities of the new life that are most difficult to hold in balance. Humility and acting in accord with the will of God. True humility means that the Christian must turn, return a blessing when they are when they are revealed. That they must defend their faith, not in arrogance, but in gentleness. And that they must conduct themselves in such a way that their accusers will be ashamed. All actions must be viewed under the um, in the light of eternity. A epistle of James is concerned with one simple truth. It is not enough to be a Christian if this doesn't show itself in one's conduct. Basic danger is thinking that the Christian message is merely an intellectual doctrine. The concern here is not so much with formulating an ethical code as with its application. It's not a very sophisticated attitude towards sin here. The author simply assumes we all make many mistakes. The cure is active repentance, return to the pattern of the new life, and to do the works which the judgment will outweigh a multitude of sins. The little dissertation about the tongue, chapters 3, the first 12 verses, seem to reflect a problem similar to the first to the one that Paul and Clement of Rome had with the Corinthians. Trouble stirred up by factions within the church that led to rivalry, strife, and worse evils. The tongue is sinful by the fact that Christians defame each other and a meek spirit. There is strife among Christians. For James, such a mood and its consequences amount to apostasy. Friendship with the world means enmity with God. Therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, the orientation point for the author's whole understanding of Christianity uh, in James is the threat of judgment. One is right or wrong 
depending on how it stands up to God's judgment. Righteousness is not a gift bestowed by God, but something God acknowledges in his judgment. One must work toward it by taking a notice of God's uh, standards. And he this seems to reject the notion of justification by faith. By faith alone is inadequate to make one acceptable to God. It has to be shown, faith has to have made a difference in the way one thinks and behaves. The real, the real quarrel is not with Paul, but a misuse of Paul. For James, commitment to the ethical code is an integral part of faith. In the judgment, God would not accept faith in the form of mere words. He demands active conformity to the rule of love. The Christian's new life needs to grow, to be nurtured and corrected. Now there's a warning though, underlying all this, do not deceive yourselves. That's probably the most hardest thing uh, to take seriously because we all deceive ourselves to some extent about ourselves. Um, we think too much of ourselves and we think too little of ourselves. And being realistic, I think, is the essence of humility, whereas we don't think too much or too little of ourselves. It's a fine balance there. Now, the author of Hebrews says himself that he belongs to the post-apostolic generation. But who wrote it remains one of the unsolved riddles of the New Testament. The fight against heresy is not a prominent feature here. The background seems to be the threat of renewed persecution with the danger of apostasy among the frightened flock. This sin, if committed after baptism, cannot be forgiven. However, his concern is not to threaten, but to strengthen the weak faith of his fellow Christians and help them to stand firm in their trials. He writes to do this, he wants to do this, by showing that the entire system of Jewish priestly sacrifices, um, including the Levitical priesthood itself, is obsolete. It has been replaced by what God did in Jesus and by the celebration in liturgy of the Christian life. The liturgia is a Greek word, which means uh, doing the work of uh, doing the work of God. In this case, it's the work of the laity. The main theological argument, Christ is the true high priest. His priesthood was foreshadowed by that of Melchizedek. He was mentioned in Genesis and the Psalms, not the tribe of Levi. As in Paul, the law has been set aside. But the law is not viewed as a set of ethical demands here. Law was considered equivalent of cultus, 
with priesthood, sacrifices, and sanctuary. With the coming of Christ, the true priesthood, sacrifice, and sanctuary have been revealed. Now, the only expression of faith found in the New Testament is to be found in Hebrews, where it is defined as the conviction of things not seen. By giving a roll call of Old Testament figures approved by God for their faith, he illustrates two dimensions of faith. One, a trusting response to the word of God, almost in the sense of hope. Secondly, patient endurance. It is through the discipline of suffering that God educates his people in righteousness. It is through faith that we understand the heavenly world, which is our true homeland. Everything here is but a shadow of the true reality. Very platonic idea. Now, what is the common thread that weaves through 1 Peter, James, and Hebrews? There is no gap between worship and ethics. Worship celebrates God's final deed of reconciliation in Jesus. But this reconciliation could not have any reality if it is not elevated also in the daily lives of Christians. This is why it's um, common, at least among Catholic churches, to have a daily Eucharist uh, and to make that a part of one's life. Now, that brings us to the book of Revelation. And this um, is really a job to try and um, get your mind wrapped around, around it. First of all, it's canonicity. It was generally accepted in the West from the beginning. It is included in Athanasius' festal letter of 367 AD. But in the East, it was not included in the canon until 508 AD. Um, the reasons, not hard to figure out. It is not complementary of Eastern churches. And perhaps more importantly, it's subject to misuse by those with highly, highly allegorical imaginations. And that's something that's still with us. Uh, that's a, that's a, a problem that dogs it to this day. The author and date, the prophet John, um, we don't know exactly um, which John this was, and it appears it was not the apostle. Um, the authority for what he was writing was not his, but Christ's. Therefore, it's not necessary to say much about himself. The guess, uh, educated guess is the late first or early second century, depending upon which scholar you pick. We have another break coming up, and I'll be back to see you shortly. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com 
As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to DefendingCatholicFaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. The literary genre of the Book of Revelation is uh, basically prophetic. Uh, The author uses the so-called prophetic present tense a great deal. It's using the present tense to speak about something that's in the future, uh, as if he's seen it happen already. Um, the, The seer is caught up in a vision of what is about to happen, yet it has been experienced by him. It's continuous with the historical situation. In other words, it's rooted in current events. It's not an abstract thesis. Now, the word apocalyptic is a Greek word meaning a revelation, a showing forth. Um, It evolved from prophecy uh, in the Old Testament. Book of Daniel, for example, and even uh, the prophet Ezekiel. The basic thesis is that God will have to intervene dramatically in an irredeemably corrupt world. The whole presumption of apocalyptic literature is very pessimistic about this world. It's hopeless. It's going to have to, the slate's going to have to be wiped clean by God. Uh, to um, correct the situation. 
Um, the future will be essentially different from the present, but it may be used to explain what is happening in the present. The fundamental connect conviction is that all of history is planned and controlled by God, not us. Now, the scriptural background for the book of Revelation um, if you don't know your Old Testament, you have a, you're definitely handicapped trying to make sense of the, the book of Revelation. It is got uh, through with old texts. The author draws from virtually all of the canonical writings. Um, in a sense, the book of Revelation is a good introduction to the Old Testament. He particularly utilizes Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Exodus, and Isaiah, plus a few non-canonical sources, such as the Book of Enoch, to provide the basis and models for his experience. But he interprets them through the altar of Christ's life and teaching. For him, that is the key to unlocking all scriptures. Now, the nature of the experiences, it's kind of an inspired scriptural meditation. Um, a parallel analog can be um, handled when he was composing his oratorio, The Messiah. He um, did it in a record short time. He drew on some music he'd already written, but um, he was so preoccupied with his project that he didn't leave his room for about two weeks. His servant had to bring food to him. And even then, quite often, when the servant came back, uh, the food hadn't been touched. Uh, Handel was so deep into this uh, piece of music. Um, The book of Revelation is an inspired scriptural meditation of a very intense time. It's a poetic attempt to express inexpressible. Like any prophet or mystic, he has a role to play in translating an experience of the ineffable into poetic imagery. And we need to keep in mind that the basic purpose of the book of Revelation is primarily pastoral. He was a practical visionary who sought to warn the Christian community of dangers it was facing in the present. And he also wanted to assure them with his own confidence in God. His object was not to obscure, but to enlighten his intended readers, who would have been immersed in the same apocalyptic imagery that he. However, the difficulty of symbolism did accomplish things. One, it required patient study by his readers. They have to be careful of attention and take his message seriously. And secondly, it camouflaged the book's seditious message event it fell into the wrong hands. Uh, a Roman straight reading book wouldn't be able to make heads or tails 
and we, we still have the same problem today. Um, the message, there are two aspects of the fundamental message. Essential conflict between Christianity from pride, wealth, and glory. All the things that most of us still uh, take seriously. Secondly, it is necessary for Christians to remain to their calling despite temptation and persecution. In this particular situation, this meant conflict between church and state. The custom of giving divine attributes to the Roman emperor had begun with Augustus. It was increasingly being encouraged as a means of providing a moral and religious basis for patriotism and for unifying the empire. The first official attempt to enforce the cult of emperor worship came during the latter part of the reign of Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 AD. John himself may have suffered already at the hands of Roman officials. Seeing what was at stake before the authorities did, he was anticipating crisis facing the church and trying to prepare his fellow Christians for it. Although Rome was one of the greatest, if not the greatest empires erected by human beings, John was not impressed. He saw the moral evils which corrupted it to the core and made it unredeemable, thus under God's judgment. For John, that judgment was imminent and about to break upon the world. His fundamental role of the martyrs in bringing about the final outpouring of God's wrath, despite appearances to the contrary, God is in control. Those who remain faithful will be vindicated soon. The abiding value of the book is that although John's anticipation proved wrong in the literal sense, it was prophetic in that the principles he laid to here have significance for all ages. His suspicion of worldly power was complemented by a realistic assessment of the Christian church, which was small, weak, distracted, and susceptible to the very evils he was warning about, namely the lack of charity, compromising with false teachings, and the laxity towards immorality, which characterized Christian society. Sounds like we're right back to square one on that, on that score. However, his visionary experience provided him and us with an important contribution to religious thought. His absolute confidence that victory would be won by the church despite sufferings, but only by God's power, not, as, not its own. The evil that threatened the early church is still with us, albeit in different forms. But such evil is judged eternally. This is something Christians of any age need to soberly contemplate. Um, a quick note here before we get into the book itself. This book is structured number seven, uh, which was in Hebrew uh, writings in the Old Testament, a sacred number, simply because the uh, it took seven days in Genesis. 
And so the number seven the number for perfection. Um, for example, we have four horsemen and three woes of she adds up to seven. Again, he uses Daniel's meditation, chapter nine of Daniel, on Jeremiah's promise that 70 years would bring about the restoration of Zion. Daniel was convinced that deliverance was only three and a half years away. A time, times, and half a time in the King James Version, or one half week of years. To make Jeremiah's prophecy on side with what was happening in his own day, Daniel had concluded that restoration in its fullness was meant to take place in 70 weeks of years. 70 times 7 is 400 years. Not only does John use these figures, he describes to the notion that history is steadily building toward a climax. Now, numerology was, was very uh, prominent in ancient thought. Uh, Pythagoras and Plato um, believed that numbers kind of way of revealing things. To, so the numbers in the book of Revelation should be important. That's enough of this. I'll be back to um, dive deeper into the book of Revelation when we come back next week. And have a good day. Thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.